Hey, welcome to another installment of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined today by the editor of WGBHnews.org, Peter Kadzis. Hello, Peter. Hey, you actually make that sound super important. I like good, that. Good. I like that. And also, Dan Kennedy, WGBH News contributor, Beat the Press regular, and former colleague of both Peter and myself at the late lamented Boston Phoenix. Dan, hello and thanks for being here. It's a Phoenix reunion. Thanks for having me, Adam. <laughs> it is. It's a Phoenix reunion at a very, I think, appropriate time because as you two know, and as listeners will soon discover, we are here to talk about this pretty unique moment, I think, in American political history, but also of the American political press. Uh, we are coming off a weekend the weekend following the inauguration of President Donald J. Trump, in which we saw the new White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, uh, call the White House press corps to attention on a Saturday and accuse them of misrepresenting basic facts about Donald Trump's inaugural in a way which in and of itself misrepresented basic facts. Spicer has been fact-checked like crazy ever since giving this very strange dressing down, and he got a bunch of key facts wrong. He just simply was not telling the truth. Then we saw Kellyanne Conway, Trump campaign manager turned White House senior advisor, tell NBC's Chuck Todd on Sunday that what Spicer had done was present alternate facts. That was her phrase. For many people, myself included, it had a somewhat Orwellian ring to it. And... Uh, here we go into the first full week of the Trump presidency with the political media trying to figure out how they are supposed to respond to this very odd new reality. So, Peter and Dan, I'd love to get your take on what exactly happened over the weekend because I'm still not entirely sure how to understand it. What do you think we just witnessed? Dan, you, you're the media expert. Well, first of all, I want to say that uh, in comparison to the uh, Trump presidency, the Trump transition now stands out as a uh, model of competence and decorum. Uh, the, the Trump presidency <laughs> in its very early days has, has seemed to be uh, completely out of control. Uh, I think that there's a big, big question here, and, and it's an important question. And it's one that we're going to have to spend a lot of time thinking about and trying to get answers to in the days and weeks ahead. And that is, uh, is there an overarching um, method to what seems to be the madness of all of these falsehoods that are coming out of the Trump camp? Uh, are they essentially, the, the phrase that keeps coming up, are they gaslighting us uh, for some sort of a purpose? Or is it just all chaos and confusion? Um, my working theory at the moment, and I'm disagreeing with a, a lot of my friends on Twitter on this, is that it's chaos and confusion. I don't really think there's an overarching uh, method to this, but I'm watching it very carefully. I hope there's no method to this seeming madness, but... And at the moment, I don't think there is, but I think it's something we need to pay attention to. Peter Kansas, what do you say, chaos and confusion or something more ominous? I, I, I vote chaos and confusion. However, I think they're going to um, find that this chaos and confusion um, works to their advantage. And in, in he, here's why. Um, America hates the press, and largely with good reason. 
present company accepted, of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> or, 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 or maybe to put it more moderately, there's an extreme distrust of the press out there. Um, the Trump administration, I, I, I think, day, day two, day and a half, when Spicer went out there and made these ludicrous claims, all you had to do was watch TV and watch the inauguration, which I give myself high marks for, you know, trundling through and watching the whole darn thing. Um, and you just thought, geez, there aren't that many people there. Now, I didn't make, a, in my own mind, I didn't think that was particularly significant. There are never as many at Republican events as there are at Democratic events because the Democrats, you know, pull from the coast. The East Coast, it's easy to get there. Um, it didn't surprise me that Trump didn't have that many people there. But, but nevertheless, when they made a big deal of it on the day when there was certainly the largest demonstration in Washington since, in, in, you know, since the anti-war mobilization, um, I just thought these people are insane. Well, let me ask you, that gets to one potential reason that they either could have made the big deal out of it that they did or a potential benefit, whatever their intent, and that would be that by advancing these easily refutable claims in a somewhat absurd way, all of a sudden we weren't talking about the women's marches in D.C. and elsewhere. We were talking about uh, Sean Spicer's apparent contempt for the truth and unprecedented way of engaging the White House uh, press contingent. So to my mind, when we talk about whether this is chaos and confusion or something more Machiavellian, that's one possible answer, right, is that this was to redirect the conversation, which is something that Trump himself showed a knack for doing repeatedly that during is the true. presidential campaign. He's, he's brilliant at it. He's taking hits on something. All of a sudden, he tweets something outrageous, and we're talking about his outrageous tweet. Right? But see, well, you, yeah, you're right, but the demonstrations were the biggest story in the country on Saturday and for most of Sunday. They're not going to be the biggest story in the country all week. I mean, there was a huge, huge story for a, for a day, two days, and uh, I think that the message of the demonstrations really broke through, it, and then we moved on to something else. Yeah, and, and, and uh, the, the, the demonstrations broke through, but also it highlighted the fact that his own inauguration wasn't as well attended, a fact that really doesn't make that much difference. But I, I think there's a larger... Uh, it's, I was about to say there's a larger issue. It's not a larger issue. I've been trying to figure out how to approach the Trump presidency in terms of noise versus reality. And, you know, I've gone back to that great political philosopher, um, George Mitchell, Mitchell, you know, Richard Nixon's former law partner, his former attorney general. Oh, John Mitchell. John Mitchell. What did I say? George Mitchell. Oh, oh my God. names sound the same. That's fine. John Mitchell, the uh, indicted Watergate conspirator. You know, he won a, uh, a, a fellowship to a federal penitentiary to uh, <laughs> contemplate the American system of government. Um, his, his big line was, you know, watch what we do, not what we say. That may not be a direct quote, that, but that's the gist of what he said. And I think that's what we have to do with Trump. Just for example, today, Trump, in, in among his executive orders, you know, signed three of them, I think, one of which pulled us out of the, the, the Pacific 
partnership trade program. Pacific partnership yeah, trade at, yeah. As he promised, and as Bernie Sanders um, one said he would too, and, and Sanders yeah, made Sanders comments. made an enthusiastic statement right. approving this. Now, now, by Trump the way, move. as an official know-it-all in the press, I've got opinions on a lot of things. These big trade partnerships, I am suspicious of them, but for for the Pacific one, I, you know, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Let's check in in two years. Let's see how is trade with China going as a result of this. Now. I, What's that have to do with this? Well, while, while we in the press and the media are, are, are all going around chasing the size of the crowd and all, all of this hoo-ha, real things are being done. Um, I, I'm just citing one example. I'm Peter, not, i got to ask you, that, yeah. to me that philosophy makes a ton of sense, and yet I also wonder if when you're in the early days of a new administration and you are getting an indication from the man who's going to be the prime communicator with the media on behalf of that administration that provable facts simply are not going to matter and that bald-faced distortions point. of reality are going to be advanced from his White House press secretary podium. It's hard for me to know if that is noise that we can filter out or this push for a, a post-truth environment that deserves an immediate cry of alarm on the part of the media and everyone else. And I think that's one of the tricky things is you can't tell what's a distraction and what is significant and meaningful, or at least I'm having trouble no, with that. No, no, uh, and I'll tell you, I'm struggling with this issue of uh, how to approach it in my own mind. First as a citizen, then as a journalist. Yeah. I think in some ways print has an advantage over those of us in broadcast because... I noticed late Saturday night, before I went to bed, I, I pulled up the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I saw, whoa, the New York Times used the term false in a front-page headline. Um, the Washington Post in a front-page headline said, not true. So in print, you're able to make your point, but then sort of move on. Um, where does this bring us? I don't know. Well, you know, when you talk about the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, really being rather tough and holding Trump to account, I think one of the most interesting dynamics that's emerged in the last few days is CNN that yep. did so much to enable Trump's rise with, with you know, unfiltered uh, rallies and uh, letting him call in. And uh, all of a sudden, CNN is being very, very tough toward Trump. Uh, it started with the most recent round, uh, started with that CNN exclusive on um, the fact that uh, Trump and then-President Obama had been briefed on the Russian dossier that had been compiled about him uh, with his personal and... Um, and uh, financial dealings, which unfortunately BuzzFeed then stomped all over by putting out the uh, the unverified uh, raw reports behind it. Uh, but that was a that was a very big and important story. And now we go to this weekend. Even before Sean Spicer had had a chance to prove himself to be a purveyor of. Um, grotesque falsehoods, CNN had made the decision that they weren't going to carry his, um, his briefing live. They were going to record it and then report on it after the fact. Oh, so I hadn't they known they made that choice. Oh, yeah. No, they did not show it live. They, 
they recorded it and then reported afterwards as to uh, you know what was credible and what wasn't. Um, you know, in the long run, I think that um, CNN and TV in general is going to have a lot more of an effect on what the public thinks of the Trump administration than the New York Times and the Washington Post. Oh, agreed. By the way, I would just mention as an aside, I think Brian Stelter from CNN has been doing a fabulous job deconstructing Trump's media approach. Ever since Trump won the election, I would probably go back to even before that, but he is just, I, I kind of feel like he was made for this moment as Stelter, a media observer. Stelter, He's been terrific. Stelter has been wonderful for months. I mean, just just fierce and intelligent and honest, and uh, I think he deserves a lot of kudos. But for a long time, he was almost alone at CNN. And, I mean, they've got some good journalists. Yeah, Jake, Jake Tapper Jake was Tapper is excellent. I, I like Anderson Cooper. But the overall feel of CNN was that we're going to provide a lot of unfiltered access to Trump, and we're not going to worry a whole lot about uh, whether he's telling the truth Well, or and not. I think they started to feel like they'd gone too far in doing that because, remember, down the home stretch of the campaign, maybe October, November, uh, they started to do fact-checking in their crawls underneath the footage, right? Trump claims X, parentheses, X isn't true, things like that. But it did come somewhat late in the game. It did indeed. Peter Kadzis, what do you think, and in a way I'm getting back to what you and I just went back and forth about a moment ago, what's the right way for the media to respond? We had Jay Rosen, the media, uh, media critic, suggests that uh, big news organizations that have access to the White House briefing room should just send their interns. Uh, by the way, I'm not so sure that's a bad idea. First of all, I have a lot of respect for interns. Interns are really hungry. Um, and what the news, what we need to do from the White House is accurately report what it is they're saying not worry about interpreting what they're saying. Rep just getting an accurate report of what the White House is saying is important. Then you could leave it to other more experienced people to um, parse that, to say what it means. I did not think that was a crazy... Mm. Maybe I'm taking it more seriously than he meant it, but... When you say uh, leave it to other people to parse it or say what it means, does that include basic fact-checking? Are you thinking, uh, you know, report accurately what they're saying as step There's one? There's a built-in... Listen, the White House is exploiting... The, this, the, the Trump organization is exploiting um, a dramatic effect, if you will, um, there's a myth that the press is, is neutral. It, it, it's never neutral. It never has been. But they certainly have to appear neutral. And arguing with the press secretary is just not dignified. Just report the darn stuff. You, you know, listen, we've learned already that the Trump press secretary is willing from day one to go out and lie. We know we've got a liar for a press secretary. It took years before Ziegler got the reputation for doing that. That's Ron well, Ziegler, just, right? Just report it. There's, there's plenty of other people, you know, whether they're old guys like me who can say, hey, wait a second, that's a tall one, or, or it's back. I, I think the press is getting sucked in. They're fighting the, the battle on their ground. They're being the Trump organization, the Trump, Trump organization, administration. Yeah. 
Dan, do you do you uh, buy what Peter's saying there? Yeah, you know, I, I largely do. Um, you know, I, I want to mention Jack Schaefer of Politico because I think that in some ways Jack was made for this moment as well. And the reason I say that is, you know, this he's very contrarian and he's always suggesting let's not get carried away with this. I think that that actually is very well suited to the moment because essentially what Jack Schaefer is saying is we can't spend the next four years running around with our hair on fire. And it, it, this is the time to do the work. And, I mean, in, in his latest column, he holds up David Fahrenthold of the Washington Post as a model for all of us. And, indeed, he is a model for all of us. And it's just, you know, dig in and report. And, and stop whining about access questions. Stop whining about a lot of these atmospherics. Just do the work. Wait, but I, I got to, and I think in a way this is maybe pushback at both of you. If you are a White House correspondent for any major news organization, and if you're sitting there getting a briefing or a dressing down from Sean Spicer, White House press secretary, and he says President Trump's inauguration was the, big, uh, was the most well-attended inauguration in history, period, isn't it doing the work to then and there, in the moment, without waiting for someone else to do it, to raise your hand and say, pardon me, Sean, or pardon me, Mr. Spicer, but it is clear from these crowd estimates that that's not the case. Let me or yeah, that, yeah okay. well, I, I see, I'll disagree. It, that's a fine thing to do, but then you get into one of these big, you know, mudstorms. You get the footage, you get the comment, you run it on whatever network or rate, you know, you run it on the air, and then as soon as you say that, the announcer says, this is not true. Go to our website to see pictures, or if it's television, you put the two pictures up right before. And uh, you see that as having sort of a better civic yeah, impact and footage of the media. reporter going we're, back and forth. Playing, we're it. playing by their rules. And, and what I would say in response to what Peter's saying is that it's not always going to be the case where a falsehood is so incredibly blatant that you can stand there in the White House briefing room and call them out on it in real time. Most of the time, it's going to take a few minutes so that you're going to have to do what Peter's suggesting, and that is just report it and, and show that it was false at the time. You know, I'm thinking about your perspectives in real time, and it's occurring to me that, Peter, what you're saying the press needs to avoid the shouting matches you know, press secretary says X, reporter says Y, coming back at them aggressively, they go back and forth, that in a way that is, if that became the established MO, then that just enhances the metamorphosis yeah, of American politics into a reality TV show, which we're already in the midst of, yeah, but look, it takes it to another level. Look, um, t t take, take a, the, the, the average press conference. It's so obvious that many of the reporters, especially the men, are just up there preening and showing what geniuses they are. About 20 minutes into today's press conference, McKay Coppins tweeted 
Come on, guys. Knock it off with the two-part question. I saw that. McKay Coppins of, uh, a BuzzFeed. of BuzzFeed, who, or actually, no, he's now at The Atlantic. Used to be oh, at BuzzFeed. I you and I chatted yes. with him during the campaign. Excellent anyway, reporter. I yep. saw... He's terrific. I like him. He, he's an incredibly nice guy. Thirded. Yeah. But, but, but he, come on. That's an example. They don't control the medium. You know, in, in so many of the... Uh, TV reporters, especially the men, are bloviating egomaniacs. And they're up there showing off, and they look like jerks. Um, th- that's why I'm saying just have younger, maybe not interns, younger people. You're there to report. You're a, you're, you're a, 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 a stereo, you, you know, a recording, stenographer. a stenographer. You're a recording service. Let the interpretation go somewhere else. All right, let me float one other possible response on the part of the press that has been bandied about. And I can't remember where this originated. We probably had a few people suggest it. But in essence, the suggestion was, all right, if you have someone like Kellyanne Conway who is going to come on a Sunday morning talk show and say things that are untrue, don't give them the platform. Oh, that, you, that's where I was going to go. Don't invite them on. Listen, during the campaign, why they had Rudy Giuliani, why all the networks had Rudy Giuliani, I'd say, why are you inviting this man on to spread falsehoods? You, you, you know, it, it's just, don't have him on. It's real simple. Dan, what do you say? Is it that simple? I don't know that it's quite that simple. Uh, I'm not aware, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of Kellyanne Conway saying something false. Instead, she, it, it was more a matter of standing up for falsehood than saying something false herself. You're right, it was more of a meta, if she will, if she will um, champion, the, uh, champion falsity yes. as a non-condemnable yes. Alterna- Alternative facts Point are a taken. thing. And my guess is that whoever suggested this noted that and that I failed to. So thank you for rectifying me. But what about, I mean, do you, do you buy the idea of cutting off access for messengers who are either mendacious or applaud mendacity? You know, I would have them on again, and at the very beginning of the interview, I would point out that, you know, you, Mr. Smith, uh, came on the last time and uh, spouted falsehoods. And so we're going to be holding, we're going to be uh, asking some pretty tough questions this time, and see what happens. Maybe he or she will get up and walk off the set. Yeah, I mean, look, if you have a story of a certain significance that involves international relations, you are going to want to have the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of State, maybe the National Security Advisor, if he, in this case, deigns to go on. That's tougher. But people dealing with that level of seriousness usually don't engage in these, let's say, you know, sordid hijinks. Um, It's just a form of editing. You don't put liars on. All you do what CNN did. You you tape the conference, the press conference, you, you see what's said, and you take out the other parts. Listen, Donald Trump would have been elected president, I believe, without the media. Nevertheless, television in particular played a big role in his meteoric rise. I mean, even the supposed left-wing liberal MSNBC, I I stopped watching them for a while in the summer because they were carrying every event of what seemed to me like every event lie. And then they'd cut from giving him all this free airtime and then say, oh, my God, this is awful. He's saying terrible things. You know, and even... (laughs) 
<laughs> Come on. You can't have it both ways. Dan Kennedy, i got to ask you, you are, among other things, uh, right now teaching a whole bunch of young journalists in training at Northeastern University in a gig of yours that I failed to mention in the introduction. How do you talk about what we're witnessing right now with the new administration and the press with them? And what do they have to say about it? Well, you know, it's, it, that, that's an interesting question because one of the classes I teach is a digital storytelling class. And quite frankly, uh, we try to keep our eye on the ball and stay away from having huge discussions about national politics. I mean, we're trying to learn how to do digital storytelling. Uh, but the other class I'm teaching this semester is a graduate ethics class. And uh, we just, you know, it just started, so we're not that deep into it. But I've told my students, I said, you know, I don't want to turn this into a weekly, here's what Trump did last week class, but it's going to be very hard to avoid it. Uh, it really is. You know, I think that uh, one of the things that came up recently was um, I've actually assigned a classic book to them uh, by Bill Kovach and Tom Rosenstiel called... Uh, the elements of journalism. And one of the chapters is journalism is a discipline of verification. And I think that at a time when, never mind the Trump administration, but there's a rather massive effort on the part of many people on the right to delegitimize what we do and essentially put Breitbart News on a, the same plane as the New York Times, uh, or, or the Alex Jones show on the same plane as uh, the Washington Post, it's, it's very important to understand what is it that makes it different from what we do. Is it that we don't make mistakes? No, of course not. We make mistakes all the time. Is it because we're unbiased? No, we, we betray a bias from time to time. But it is that we try to verify the facts we try to get them right, and when we don't, we issue a correction. And I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things that has been seized on by the Trump administration in the last couple the of days is, oh, well, look, Zeke Miller, I believe, from Time magazine, right, right. he erroneously reported, although I don't think that was the phrase they used, he said <laughs> that, tried, that uh, the president had removed a bust of Martin Luther King from the Oval Office, and then he, and he, but he corrected himself exactly. and apologized. Right. Yes. And I don't think we've and seen both appeared on on Twitter. First, he made the allegation on Twitter, then the correction and the apology on Twitter. That wasn't noted. That's the selective telling of truth. That that doesn't bother me as much. But let me bring in the. That is a good example. L let me bring up something uncomfortable. Now, I believe that these, the women's marches, in all over the United States and indeed the world, were very important development. Nevertheless, in Washington D.C. Um, Madonna, you know, got up and, and... The material girl. The material girl, um, and, and said that she wishes she could blow up the White House. Now, if Obama had been president and, say, some right-wing country, Western star, at a huge rally had said that, I think it would have gotten more play than what Madonna said. Now, in the larger context of the day, how important is that? That's not as important as the numbers in, in many other things. But nevertheless, I think that shows our inherent bias in the media. That, that, that I want to mention that I'm nodding quietly but with great vigor as you make this point. I think that, you're right. It, 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 it shows that you can explain away why that wasn't on the front page of many newspapers. And, and they may even be good examples. But w 
the media is selective. To me, I find that very dangerous. I'm um, ashamed to say I was barely, I I'd sort of had heard something like that, but I didn't know that she had actually said that. Well, I was only able to get confirmation. I read it, yeah. and I forget where I read it. Yeah. And then my wife, who was in Washington, mm. told me more about it. Yeah. And she said, no one took her seriously. Madonna isn't a serious person. Still the same standard. And it, I, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. being intentionally provocative here. Um, this is the sort of thing that gets the press in trouble with the larger public. All right, Dan Kennedy, last word to you. I want you to tell me if two years from now, three years from now, if we get together and continue this conversation, uh, will the concept of alternative facts still be a thing? And will we have reached a point in American history where fact-checking has become impossible because people don't have a basic agreement about what it takes for a fact to be verifiable? Well, I think we're already there. So I think the question is, how much worse is it going to get? Um, somebody put it this way uh, within the last day or so, and I think it's about right. Um, the, a third of the public uh, doesn't believe these falsehoods that are being put out by the Trump administration. A third of the public does because they're just completely straight down the line with, uh, with, with the Trump people and uh, they're going to believe whatever they're fed. So then, so then you have this one-third in the middle. Are they going to feel like it's impossible to know? Who knows? This side saying this, that side saying that. I guess we just don't know what the truth is. And if that is the reaction, then I think that this move toward uh, an alternative fact universe will only continue to uh, proceed in the wrong direction. See, I see the world continuing, uh, de continuing to develop along the way it has for the last 20 or 30 years, which, which is a growing gap between the rich, the powerful, the educated on the, on the one hand, and those who aren't on the other. Um, Elites, and I don't mean elites pejoratively, I mean those at the top, those with brains, money, and power, can't afford the alternative universe. Readers of The Economist, which isn't always right, but probably right 90% of the time, you, 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 you know, the rich people who read The Economist can't afford to get bad information. Um, the people at the top of our society will be informed. Um, and it's sad to say that the people at the bottom might not necessarily be. That's what's going on today. Um, the, the, uh, as the gap between the rich and the poor, between the educated and the uneducated grows, this is how it impacts democracy in a very real way. Although I have to push back at the idea that, that the poor cannot afford uh, to become well informed. Oh, I'm not, I'm not suggesting be, that. Because it, it's, I mean, you know, they may not be able to afford a subscription to The Economist, but uh, there are plenty of sources of, of free Listen, and inexpensive, high-quality news, you can including WGBHnews.org. You can get the best of The Economist. Undercut only slightly by your stentorian uh, tones, as you said. Follow The Economist on Facebook. You'll get most of it free. But yep. by the way, I think, I mean, Peter, you were saying they can't afford in the sense that they have huge financial stakes, right? That, that, that's what I, I meant to afford, not data. literally. Right. I, I, I meant, y exactly, that, that um, 
the, the rich um, cannot afford not to have good information. So, you know, what I thought Dan was going to say in pushing back at you was, well, lower income individuals also cannot afford the luxury of being misinformed because they have too much at stake. Dan, I think that I've seen you. No, they you, can't. That's right. I think I've seen you maybe on social media post in frustration about this. If it's not you, I've seen other people do it. During the campaign and after the campaign, voters who um, looked from their description in a given news account, like they were probably economically struggling, uh, had hopes for the new administration, which would include things like, well, maybe he'll create single-payer style Canadian health care, or I sure hope he leaves the Affordable Care Act alone because I can't afford to have it repealed. And those people may not have had the information that they needed to make a good decision, it, but that doesn't mean that they can afford the luxury of not having it. That's right, and it drives me crazy. I mean, the Boston Globe had a very good story over the weekend uh, where they went to Winchenden, which had a sizable uh, Trump constituency during the campaign, and one of the people they interviewed said that uh, he voted for Trump in part because he wants Trump to fix the health care system. And then he said, Canada seems to have figured it out. Why can't we? That's and what I was thinking I, of. You, you know, you just want to scream and not stop screaming when you see stuff like that. All right. Before we go, and we got to wrap it up, one pithy exhortation for our colleagues in the press from each of you. And I want to start with Peter Kansas. Don't take yourself too seriously. Ratchet down. Think old school. Focus on the facts. Dan Kennedy. I'm going to quote old Dan Rather. Courage. Oh, my word. <laughs> All right. Dan Kennedy and Peter Kadzis, thank you both for being here to kick around this very important topic. What's the frequency, Kenneth? <laughs> yeah, I've left that one out. <laughs> That's going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. As always, you can find back episodes of our podcast at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum, where you can also find, I guess, current episodes, new episodes as they come out. In addition, the whole darn thing, the whole darn thing if you like what you heard today, you should subscribe to us on iTunes or via whatever podcatcher you may happen to use. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.